I uh, go into our Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Lord, we <clears throat> just come to you right now knowing that you, uh, you are sovereign over all things. Um, we pray for this time of, of studying a pastor who lived long ago, um, a man who we um, may look up to, uh, we may look down on for some of the things in his life, Lord. We, we pray that his life would be an example to us of, of just another person who you have drawn to yourself and who in turn uh, lived his life after that moment uh, for your glory alone. And so we pray that this would be an encouragement to everyone here today. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I'm also going to not try not to mess this up with the clicker, clicking my slides, going back and forth. So I'll do my best. John Newton, July 24th, 1725 to December 21st, 1807. Quick math, that's held. How old was he? Well done, Arthur. Okay, so not a young man. Did not die at a young age. Pastored all the way up almost to the very end um, after he was 80. So why John Newton? Um, James had has alluded to the fact that we chose based off of the 21 people who are in this book that Piper wrote. Um, there's biogra- short biographies about each person in this book, and so we were tasked with choosing one or two for each of us um, from this book. So quick disclaimer, everything good that I say, just assume that it's a quote pulled directly from Piper out of this book, okay? Um, just so you know that up front, disclaimer. Why I chose Newton, well, I chose him for one reason. I wanted to know more about the man who wrote Amazing Grace. Um, why, what led up to that. I had heard kind of a sort of backstory about his life in very vague terms. Um, so flat out, first one, I saw his name was in the book. I said, is he still available? That's who I want. Number one. Um, uh, Piper says, um, I dream of durable, never say never defenders of true, <clears throat> of true doctrine who are mainly known for the delight they have in God and the joy in God that they bring to the people of God who enter controversy, controversy when necessary not because they love ideas and arguments, but because they love Christ and the church. He also says, um, why Newton? Because one of the great desires, one of my great desires is to see Christians be as strong and durable as redwood trees and as tender and fragrant as, field of clo- as a field of clover, unshakably rugged in the defense and confirmation of the truth and relentlessly humble and patient and merciful in dealing with people. Um, if we are all, we are always falling off the horse on one side or the other. Um, in this matter of being tough and tender, durable and delightful, courageous and compassionate, and we we wimp out on the truth when we ought to be lion-hearted, 
and we are wrangling when we ought to be weeping, is what Piper says. So, um, oh, how rare are Christians who speak with a tender heart and have a theological backbone of steel. So, no perfect pastors. Sorry, Blake, this is not intended directly at you. Um, This is a quote from Newton. In my imaginations, I sometimes fancy I could create a perfect minister. I take the eloquence of blank and the knowledge of blank and the zeal of blank and the pastoral meekness, tenderness, and piety of blank. Then putting them all together into one man, I say to myself, this would be a perfect minister. Now there is one who, if he chose to, could actually do this, but he never did. He has seen fit to do otherwise and to divide these gifts to every man severally as he will. So there are no perfect pastors, no no perfect lay people, elders, Christians. So this is absolutely not about the perfectionism, the perfection of Newton. Uh, But we can learn from his strengths, mainly his greatest strength, which was speaking the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. So which side of the, the horse do you fall off on? This, this idea of being tender, but also being truthful. Uh, we're going to go into this more, more deeply. But first, his childhood. Born to Elizabeth and John Sr., uh, 1725 in London. Um, his mother was a devout congregationalist. Um, she taught him the Westminster Catechism, the whole Westminster Catechism, and the hymns of Isaac Watts, most of this before he was six. Um, his father was an irreligious captain of a trade ship. <clears throat> but unfortunately, his mother died when he was just six, and his father married almost immediately afterwards. I think it said within six months of his mother's uh, death, he was already remarried. Um, after she died, he went to boarding school from the ages from ages eight to ten, and these were the only two years of formal education he ever had, which is amazing just to hear him write and the poet he became and the hymn writer he became that two years of school was it a formal education. Uh, From 11 to 18, he was a sailor on his father's ship. Um, He wrote of his relationship with his father, I am persuaded that he loved me, but he seemed not willing that I should know it. I was with him in a state of fear and bondage. His sternness broke and overawed my spirit. At 17... He met uh, Mary Catlett, um, and she was 13 at the time. And so for the next seven years, he would think about her nonstop. Um, he's, uh, Newton says this, None of the scenes of misery and wickedness I afterwards experienced after banished, uh, ever banished her a single hour together from my waking thoughts for the seven following years. 
So on top of being on his father's ships uh, for those years, becoming a a sailor at heart, um, he spoke like a sailor at heart. Um, He was then forced into the naval service when he was 18. Um, The moral decay that had already taken place for the previous eight years would be completed during this time. He said, I was capable of anything. I had not the least fear of God before my eyes, nor, so far as I remember, the least sensibility of conscience. My love to Mary was now the only restraint I had left. At the age of 20, on a visit home, he deserted his naval ship. Um, They caught him, kept him in irons, publicly stripped and whipped him, and degraded him from his officer status. So when he went into the Navy, he was kind of immediately brought in as an officer because of his experience um, with the, uh, the trade ships. So his time in West Africa, not good. Um, when he was 20, they put him off the ship on a small island just south of Sierra Leone in West Africa. For almost two years, he was treated as a slave especially by the wife of his master. He was treated so badly, even the slaves would try to smuggle him food. Uh, A ship happened to dock on on the island, and the captain just happened to know Newton's father and was able to free him from his bondage. March 21st, 1748. He awakened that night to a violent storm as his room began to fill with water. As the rain, as he, as he ran for the deck, the captain stopped him and had him fetch a knife. The man who went up in his place was immediately washed overboard. Newton said, if this will not do, the Lord have mercy upon us. This was the first time he had expressed the need for mercy in many years. He worked the pumps for th- from three in the morning until noon, slept for an hour, then took the helm and steered the ship until midnight. At the wheel, he had time to think back over his life and his spiritual condition. At about six o'clock the next evening, it seemed as though there might be hope. I thought I saw the hand of God displayed in our favor. I began to pray. I could not utter the prayer of faith. I could not draw near to a reconciled God and call him Father. The comfortless principles of in, in, infidelity were deep, uh, deeply riveted. The great question now was how to obtain faith. He found a Bible and got the help from Luke eleven thirteen, which promises the Holy Spirit to those who ask. He said, if this book be true... The promise in this passage must be true likewise. I have need of that very spirit by which the whole was written. In order to understand it right, he was, uh, sorry, hold on. I have need of that very spirit by which the whole was written in order to understand it aright. He has engaged here to give the spirit to those who ask. I must therefore pray for it. And if it be of God, he will make good on his own word. 
This is what he said about the, main, the remainder of his trip to Ireland. So they were on their way to Ireland whenever they came through this uh, terrible storm. Thus far I was answered that before we arrived in Ireland, I had a satisfactory evidence of my own mind of the truth of the gospel as considered in itself and of its exact suitableness to answer all my needs. I stood in need of an almighty Savior, and such a one I found described in the New Testament. Thus far the Lord had wrought a marvelous thing. I was no longer an infidel. I heartily renounced my former profaneness and had taken up some right notion, was seriously disposed and sincerely touched with the sense of the undeserved mercy I had received and being brought safe through so many dangers. Sorry if that whole long quote wasn't up there just now. Um, to continue, he says, I was sorry for my past um, misspent life and purpose to immediate, an immediate reformation. I was quite freed from the habit of swearing, which seemed to have been as deeply rooted in me as a second nature. Thus, to all appearance, I was a new man. So although he did see this moment in his life as significant, he believed it to be, he didn't believe it to be the actual moment of his conversion. Uh, he said, I acknowledge the Lord's mercy in pardoning what was past, but depended chiefly upon my own resolution to do better for the time to come. I cannot consider myself to have been a believer in the full sense of the word till a considerable time afterwards. So he says there was no dependence on God for the life he now saw he needed to live. He did spend the rest of his voyage in deep uh, seriousness as he read and prayed over the scriptures. So for six years he had no Christian friend or faithful minister to advise him. He became the captain of a slave, tra slave trading ship. So, th so think of his life so far, all that he's gone through. The trade ships he were on were just merchant ships. He wasn't slave trading at the time. He goes through this experience, almost losing his life and, and the ship he's on, comes to some realization of his need for a savior, and then becomes a captain of a slave ship. Um, I, I think this is one of those moments where a lot of people have criticized Newton because of of this, how after receiving what you received, did you go on and become the a slave ship captain, not just work on a slave ship, became a captain of a slave ship, and how badly you were mistreated, worse than the slaves were being mistreated, and you still did what you did. This was a time he would look back on with great remorse. He said, it was a commerce so iniquitous, so cruel, so oppressive, so destructive. It was the African slave trade. He married Mary, the same one from before, uh, February 1st, 1750. So... Um, in November of 1754, so he's married in 50 and 54, um, 
after having been on three long voyages, 13 months apiece, he had an epileptic, epileptic seizure and never sailed again. Um, so it's kind of an abrupt halt to his uh, sailing career as a captain. He became the surveyor of tides in Liverpool. Um, for the next 10 years, he, would, he was the surveyor of tides in Liverpool. So does anybody know what the surveyor of tides did in this time? What was that job function? Anybody? No, so that's what I thought at first, but he was it's more of a customs officer in this time. So he would go out, a, a ship would come in, they would ferry him out, and he would go through the ship looking for contraband and things that were um, tucked away, hidden, that they were trying to hide from, from cus the customs officers is what they said. Um, uh, quick math, 25? Yeah. I'm not good at quick math in my head. <laughs> so this many spent a considerable amount of time spent doing pretty much nothing. Um, so he would read. He spent time reading the best writers of divinity in Latin, English, and French, which he taught himself at sea, not English. He already had English, but Latin and French he taught himself while he was <clears throat> at sea uh, for so many years. Um, but he mainly gave himself to the scriptures. Um, some would say that by the early uh, 1760s, his theological formation was complete, and he would have few significant realignments of his beliefs um, after this point. Uh, 1764, he accepted the call to a pastorate of the Church of England parish in only, I'm going to say only at least a couple of times, it's Olney, um, which is just a small town outside of London. Uh, 1st of December, 1779, he became the pastor of St. Mary's Woolnoth in London. Um, a bigger church, but not much bigger. Both of these were still relatively small congregations. Um, first one, 16 years as the pastor 27 years in um, St. Mary's. And he died December 21st, 1807 at the age of 82. So it's 9.50, we're done. That was it, all of it right there. No. So, so again, we go back to Piper's thoughts of why why was why is Newton worth considering? Why is he worth looking at his life for all the good and bad? Um, his focus then really shifts hard into his pastorate for these two congregations. Um, so his habitual tenderness. 
He believes and feels his own weakness and unworthiness and lives upon the grace and pardoning love of his Lord. This gives him a habitual tenderness and gentleness of spirit. This was the deepest root of his habitual tenderness. I commit my soul to to my gracious God and Savior, who mercifully spared and preserved me when I was an apostate, a blasphemer, an infidel, and delivered me from the state of misery on the coast of Africa into which my obstinate wickedness had plunged me, and who has been pleased to admit me, though most unworthy, to preach his glorious gospel. This is a man who could truly write, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. So Piper speaks about the persons and patterns of his tenderness. Um, So to whom was he tender, and what form did this tenderness take? So that's what we're going to look at now. Uh, Piper starts with who Newton was tender to, uh, loving people at first sight. Whoever has tasted of the love of Christ and has known by his own experience the need and the worth of redemption is enabled... Yea, he is constrained to love his fellow creatures. He loves them at first sight. And if the providence of God commits a dispensation of the gospel and care of soul to him, he will feel the warmest emotions and friendship and tenderness while he beseeches them by the tender mercies of God and even while he warns them by his terrors. That was from Newton. So we tend to fall short in this area. Uh, because we feel we must befriend someone before we're allowed to present the gospel, right? We we feel like that's the only way it, it happens organically, and we it, it grows out of a love for someone who we've now grown to love. Newton was kind of the opposite. He he found it necessary if the Lord gave you the opportunity to present the gospel, and if gaining a brother or sister in in that. It was, it was a, a closeness that was knit together by not yourself, but by the Lord himself. And so I think this is one of the ways he may look a little different from the way we approach um, people. Um, I know for me, I can be very pessimistic about people at times. And um, this, this didn't seem like somebody who uh, had that, that state of mind, that, that presence to... Uh, to have to befriend someone before uh, sharing the gospel. Next group. Suffer the little... Yeah. 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 It was something that definitely hit me that I... I don't think had Piper not brought it up, it wouldn't have immediately been something that was um, immediately obvious to him. That was a quote from Newton, uh, the long one before. So, Christ showed his tenderness in the way he loved and cared for the hearts of little children. Newton had a warm affection for ministering to children. At one point, he had almost 200 children coming to his studies where he would have a child stand up 
read a passage, and then he would just explain it. It's pretty amazing uh, ministry for someone of his nature, his demeanor in the past to to have this affection for ministering to, to little children in this way. And this began almost immediately when he came to Olney. <clears throat> so it's two flocks where the other people... Um, he, possess, he possesses so much affection for his people and so much zeal for their interests that the defect of his manner was little consideration with, the, with his constant hearers. He was not the most careful or graceful with his delivery style, and he was often not even very well prepared. I have seldom one hour free from interruption. Letters that must be answered, visit, visitants that must be received, business that must be attended to. I have a good many sheep and lambs to look after, sick and afflicted souls, dear to the Lord. And therefore, whatever stands still, still that's supposed to be still, these must not be neglected. <clears throat> so just his heart for the people of these two congregations was amazing. Then a minister to the depressed. James mentioned William Cooper um, in his talk. Didn't mention him, talked about him extensively. So if you can remember back on his life, very depressed man, um, comes to live in Olney uh, to sit under the teaching of Newton. Uh, Cooper stayed with Newton two separate times uh, during his 12 years in Olney. Stayed with him physically, like in his own home. Uh, five months one time, and then 14 months the second time. For nearly 12 years, we were seldom separated for seven hours when we were awake and at home. The first six passed daily admiring and aiming to imitate him. During the second six, I walked pensively with him in the valley of the shadow of death. When Cooper's brother died in 1770, Newton decided to help Cooper uh, by collaborating with him in writing hymns uh, for the church. These became known as the Olney hymns. Um, 66 of them were attributed to Cooper and over 300 attributed to Newton. Um, William J. wrote, He had the, tender, the tenderest disposition and always judiciously regarded his friend's depression and despondency as a physical effect for the removal of which he prayed, but never reasoned or argued with him concerning it. Now we switch our focus from uh, focus to the pa his patterns of tenderness. Um, beware, my friend, of, of mistaking the ready exercise of gifts for the exercise of grace. Being gracious to people did not mean being gullible. Um, Newton was not driven away by people's imperfections, their harshness, um, and he was not overly impressed with their gifts. He was patient and perceptive. He saw beneath the surface that repelled and the surface that attracted. 
Here we see the very roots of the tenderness or the truth at work in the fruit of, the, of this tenderness, which was love, the speaking truth and love. We keep that in your mind at all times with this. Uh, patience and perception guided him between doctrinal intellectualism on one side and doctrinal indifference and carelessness on the other side. I have been 30 years forming my own views, and in the course of this time, some of my hills have sunk and some of my valleys have risen. But now, unreasonable within me to expect all this should take place in another person, and that in the course of a year or two. So he's speaking about the time in which it took for him to balance out where he's at and this not having the expectation that, oh my goodness, sorry y'all, um, of not expecting that from another person, that kind of growth, that kind of uh, dis- being able to draw those distinctions and whatnot in a matter of a year or two and to not come down on his congregation for not, why don't, why don't you guys get this? I've been preaching this for six weeks. Why are you not getting this yet? That was never his mindset. That was never his his demeanor uh, when dealing with, with people. But that truth was always the defeater of heresy um, and not not fighting it any other way than by fighting it with by establishing truth. I am a friend of peace and being deeply convicted that no one can profitably understand the great truths and doctrines of the gospel any farther than he is taught of God. I have not a wish to obtrude my own tenets upon others in a way of controversy, yet I do not think myself bound to conceal them. Newton says, my principal method of defeating heresy is by establishing truth. One possesses to fill a bushel with tares. Now, if I can fill fill it first with wheat, I shall defy his attempts. He knew that receiving the greatest receiving the greatest truths required supernatural illumination. From this, he inferred that his approach should be patient and unobtrusive. I do believe this is the key to how we minister to those around us. He was a Calvinist much as we don't necessarily love the term itself. He was a Calvinist, a five-point Calvinist. And this is what he thought about the doctrines of grace. The views I have received of the doctrines of grace are essential to my peace. I could not live comfortably a day or an hour without them. I likewise believe them to be friendly to holiness and to have a direct influence in producing and maintaining a gospel conversion, and therefore I must not be ashamed of them. So he leaned heavy on 2 Timothy 2, um, what Piper says, um, verse 24 through 26, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with, with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth 
and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. He says, I'm more of a Calvinist than anything else, but I use my Calvinism in my writings and my preaching as I use this sugar, taking a lump and putting it into his tea, into his teacup and stirring it, adding, I do not give it alone and whole, but mixed and diluted. I think we can take that out of context, that that's the main focus, but he's talking about how he uses his doctrine in everything he preaches. In other words, his Calvinism permeated all that he wrote and taught and served to sweeten everything. Few people like to eat sugar cubes, but they like the effect of sugar when it permeates in right proportions. This is why he did not write the way in the way in which John Owen writes. Instead, he wrote letters and hymns and sermons. He didn't write theological discords or bodies of divinity. He wrote real life things to people in his congregation. So many, There's tons and tons and tons of letters that are out there that you can read from him that are just amazing, dealing with someone would send in a question about something, write him a question, and he would go through some mostly brief, like it look like they would be like a one-page, page-and-a-half letter back to that person responding about whatever it was. And the topics range from everything, from um, talking specifically about uh, perseverance of the saints all the way down to physical ailments and, and everything in between. And so they're just amazing that you can go and you can still see these and read them and just the tenderness that comes out of each one of these letters that he writes to his congregation, mostly to his congregation, not all of them, but most of them. So praying for his opponents. As to your opponent, I wish that before you set pen to paper against him and during the whole time you are preparing your answer, you may commend him by earnest prayer to the Lord's teaching and blessing. This practice will have a direct tendency to con uh, conciliate your heart to love and pity him, and such a disposition will have a good influence upon every page you write. If he is a believer... In a little while, you will meet in heaven. He will be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth is to you now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts. If he is an unconverted person, he is, more he is a more proper object of your compassion than your anger. So there were some misgivings about his approach. So, Newton's approach, holding the truth and permeating all our ministry with the greatness and sweetness of truth for the transformation of our people's lives is the main part of our ministry. That was Newton's thoughts. While this approach sounds good, there were some who thought this was not the right way to minister. Uh, William Plummer <coughs> said about Newton, Surely the truth ought to be... <coughs> 
abundantly set forth, but this is not sufficient. The human mind is not like a bushel. It may learn much truth and yet go, go after folly. The effect of Mr. Newton's practice was unhappy. He was hardly dead till many of his people went far astray. Paul says, preach the word, be instant, instant in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. That's 2 Timothy 4.2. The more subtle, bitter, and numerous the foes, oft he, often the truth are the, most, are the more fearless decided its friends should be. Uh, so Richard Cecil says, who actually wrote, I believe, one of his biographies, one of Newton's biographies, uh, he says of his hero that he did not always administer consolation with sufficient dis- discrimination. Sorry, guys. Told you it would be difficult. It's like patting your head and rubbing your belly at the same time. <laughs> um, so the eye of a poet. Newton had the eye and the heart and tongue of a spiritual poet, and this gave his speech a penetrating power that many reform preachers desperately needed. He wrote hymns and poems for his people for special occasions. I do believe Amazing Grace was a hymn he wrote for the beginning of one year. I can't remember exactly which year it was for the first uh, first Sunday of that that year that he brought with him um, when he preached. Um, instead of excessive abstraction in his preaching, there was the concrete word and illustration. Instead of generalizing, there was specific birds or flowers or apples or a shabby old man. So he said this, Tonight I attended an eclipse of the moon. How great, O Lord, are thy works. With what punctuality do the heavenly bodies fulfill their courses? I thought, my Lord, of thine eclipse, the horrible darkness which overwhelmed thy mind when thou sayest, why hast thou forsaken me? Uh, for sin, sin was the cause, my sin. Yet I do not hate sin or loathe myself as I ought. So I love this example of the concrete way in which he taught. Suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate, and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think, think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. We say, men are foolish for fret, to fret so much over material things when they will inherit eternal riches. But Newton said, we will never be tender toward our people. Oh, sorry, wrong quote. 
Oh yeah. We will never be tender to our toward our people if we merely communicate uh, the heaviness of general concepts and theories, rather the the specific stuff of the world in which they live. Which I think was again goes back to how he preached, how he taught, how he dealt with um, actual issues in the church in the bodies, um, and which brought so much of a different perspective than, say, an Owen or someone like that, um, who was very theologically deep, sometimes very hard to understand. So gratitude producing humility. The effects of this amazement is tenderness towards other. The wretch who has been saved by grace believes and feels his own weakness and unworthiness and lives upon the grace and pardoning love of his Lord. This gives him a habitual tenderness and gentleness of spirit. Till the day he died, he never ceased to be amazed that, quote, such a wretch should not only be spared and pardoned, but reserved to the honor of preaching the, thy gospel, which he had blasphemed and renounced. This is wonderful indeed. So he finds it easy to forgive others because of how he feels about his own sin. So once again, we get a great picture of this with a story from Newton. A company of travelers fall into a pit. One of them gets a passenger to draw him out. Now he should not be angry with the rest of, of them for falling in, nor because they are not out yet, as he is. He did not pull himself out. Instead, therefore, of repro reproaching them, he should show them pity. A man truly illuminating will no more dispense, uh, despise others than Bartimaeus, after his own eyes were open, would take a stick and beat every blind man he met. That was a quote from Piper, obviously. <coughs> so the providence of God. Newton trusted in the providence of God. And his faith upholds him under all trials by assuring him that every dispensation is under the direction of his Lord, that chastisement are a token of his love, that the season, measure, and continuance of his suffering are appointed by infinite wisdom and designed to work for his everlasting good, and that grace and strength shall be afforded him according to his day. In order to maintain love and tenderness that thinks more about others, another person's need, than our own comforts, we must have an unshakable hope that the sadness of our lives will work out for everlasting good. So speaking of the, pro that's the first really heard speaking of the providence of God in that way, 
about how we minister to others in our own affliction and putting ourselves, um, putting others before ourselves and how that actually marries itself to the providence of God and our unshakable hope that we have in the finished work of Christ. So we go back to Piper's quote at the beginning. One of my great desires is to see Christians be as strong and durable as redwood trees and as tender and fragrant as a field of clover, unshakably rugged in the defense and confirmation of the truth and relentlessly humble and patient and merciful in dealing with people. So I'm going to be honest. I'm a little quicker than I thought I was going to be. Um, so we've got about 15-ish minutes to talk specific thoughts. I went through a lot. I put a lot of quotes in there. I apologize for that. I know that's not good PowerPoint etiquette. Um, but things that he said hit me harder than what a lot of what Piper said about what he said. It seemed important to hear from the person that we're studying and not just speak about him continuously and not actually hear his own words about how he felt. Um, I didn't speak much on the slave trading. I didn't speak much on his, him and Wilberforce um, working together uh, to help abolish uh, slavery in the slave trade in England. Of the time, so going from being a slave trader to um, at one point Wilberforce comes to him and says, "I'm thinking about joining the ministry and, and getting out of politics," and he tells him, "Don't. We need you in politics to fight this this battle." Um, and so he convinces him convinces him to stay, and then works alongside him uh, to. Uh, I think it happened right after Wilberforce died, maybe, and then right before Newton died, the, they passed, I can't remember what the name of the act is, that um, abolished the uh, African slave trade in England. Um, so, so anyone else who knows other things, facts, I know Blake's read the uh, biography, Newton's biography. Um, thoughts about his life, questions, comments? Yes, they said he was, uh, uh, I'm drawing a blank now, he was too Methodist uh, for the English church in the beginning. And then someone that he knew who was important enough uh, convinced the Church of England, like, no, you need, you need to uh, not worry about his, his, uh, his shortcomings and, and let this man be a minister. So that was... Some, also something I did not mention. Yeah. Yeah, because we have, we can go one of two ways in that moment. We can go into a Cooper-like state of very, um, not being able to function and not being being paralyzed completely by 
uh, the things that we've done, our shortcomings, how we fall short. And, and that was not at all him, but so much of, I'd, I should have put it up there, um, all, the, all of the words to Amazing Grace. But to go back and read the words of that, it's hard because I'm such a musical person. I say that. I don't play music. I don't, I'm a terrible singer. I love music. Um, but whenever I read that, it's so hard just to read the words of that hymn and not tear up. It's just so difficult because of even just barely knowing about him. It's even harder for me now to do it, knowing all of the things that he went through in his life and the, the, the drastic change that God put him through. Um, it's... <clears throat> It's hard to not look at my life and immediately have regret for the things that have not, that the ways in which I've fallen short. Uh, to look back on my past failures and just have to wrestle with those and wrestle with those day in and day out and day in and day out and see my sin in my life now and just be undone by it. But that's not what he did. It's not, that's not what the Lord has for us. And I pray that as we go through a, a study like this of someone who, I think James said it, we're not trying to put these people in front and say, be like Newton, be like Owen's next week, be like Owen. It, that's not the point. The point is to see these people that they still have shortcomings just like we do. They weren't perfect. They, they are a great example for us to see some, a real person who lived a real life and struggled with sin just as we do, but still has lived their life for the glory of God in whatever avenue that was, whether it be a Wilberforce in politics, whether it be a, a Newton in the pastorate. A lot of the Puritans didn't have giant congregations of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. They had little bitty churches that they ministered to for a long period of time, and that was what they did. A lot of them just happened to be really good writers as well and put a lot of stuff out. But for the most part, most of them go completely unnoticed. There was a lot of them doing the same thing, just not writing about it. Um, not writing theological discords, as he says. So, I think that's a good point as well, just that I tend to see my own conversion yes i was not living for the lord yes i was doing things that i shouldn't have been doing but i wasn't an african slave trader i wasn't this terrible thing or that terrible thing and this and then i kind of lose sight of what you just said that that i i don't see i don't sufficiently see my sin as it as it should be perceived either and that we just I think that sometimes those who have gone through those things, those deep, dark things, and the Lord pulls them out of that, that they're the ones that are the most tender with other people and the most compassionate for others who are in the same situation as they were. Um, and we can sometimes have that. Um, we're up on a perch thinking, looking down on everybody for how bad their life is and, and not see our own sin for what it really is. Um, so I think that's a good, a good thing to, to mention.
Yeah. I was blown away just going and and you can find them. There's, uh, I I can't remember the website, but there's a thing, just go look for Puritan writings. And there's like a whole, I mean, it's everything. Like all of them are all on there and they're searchable. They're so easy to find things that you want to find. But just read some of those letters. They're they're amazing. The tenderness that just is shown in those is just incredible. I I did also want to mention when I think of the most famous American, not American, uh, the most famous hymn that we sing in the American church, it's Amazing Grace, or at least to me, when I think of that's that's the top of the list, right? That is the most. People, non-believers know the words to Amazing Grace, at least the first few lines. Like, that's pretty amazing. It was almost virtually non-existent in, it was, it was read or sung or however he, he uh, used them, the one Sunday, and then almost completely forgotten until it came to the United States. And then the tune, uh, the... Some attribute it to the the South and the the slaves in the South singing a completely different tune, it to a completely different tune, and it really kind of taking off from there, which is amazing if that is actually the way it was that it happened. But that it was almost completely not like just not just another one of the three hundred he wrote, and for how important and how amazing it is, and how much everyone knows it. There's been probably 50 plus um, singers that have sung it on on different records or whatever, um, their renditions of it. I mean, it's just amazing um, the impact that that hymn has had and for it to virtually have no impact in in the Church of England at all, which is just crazy. Fun fact, I guess. (laughs) Final thoughts? Anybody else? Raham? Uh oh. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it has to at least weigh somewhat in our mind of what uh, that there was this criticism of him that he was too soft with, with his delivery. He wasn't. He didn't speak against um, false teaching and heresy as sternly as he should. Um, but I think so much of that came from him knowing his own sinfulness his own wretchedness and that the lord had to do a work in him and that that was kind of the place where he where his ministry stood that was the the ground in which he he stood on was that the lord has to do a work in this person i'm called to present the truth um but he was very much against controversy and um uh calling people out for for heresy and things um what there was another pastor um Scott, Thomas Scott, I think, um, in just another parish over that instead of going, um, he was really bad-mouthing Newton about the, of his approach, and he began to write him letters and, and not calling him out, being very polite and cordial with him about it, and I think that that could easily be, I mean, it's, Piper says we fall off the horse one way or the other. We're either not stern enough, or we're too stern and we're pushing people away. And so there's always a balance that we're trying to find. And did he hit that perfect balance? Piper doesn't necessarily try to say, yeah, he does, or he doesn't. But 
that there's it's something that we should consider is it it probably warranted some some criticism because of it, if as soon as he left everybody fell away that's probably not very good either yeah <laughs> yeah yeah he said i could i could think of the perfect pastor but god didn't see fit to do that yeah all right thanks guys and gals